Many listeners of this podcast can relate to a sense of being pulled by the mountains, a feeling that John Muir put memorably when he wrote, The mountains are calling and I must go. We answer the call for our own sense of adventure or to recharge our connection to nature, but some of us are called to higher, harder pursuits. These mountaineers head high with safety equipment, skill, and experience. Essential equipment on the glaciated peaks of crampon country, close call country. But just as the mountains call us, they also let us know when not to go. And our ability to hear and listen to that call, that can make all the difference. I made a decision to survive. You're in that survival mode. The the idea of dying wasn't in my head. I knew immediately it was the worst case scenario. I was in a fight for my life situation. Whenever you walk out on these trails, you're in their house. I'm Louisa Albanese, and you're listening to Out Alive by Backpacker. In each episode of this podcast, we'll bring you real stories of real people who survived the unsurvivable. I saw the rope zip through the rappel ring, and I couldn't do anything. Learn what went wrong, what went right, and how you can escape if the worst-case scenario happens to you. There is no way we would find anybody alive. My name is uh, Taylor Gibbler. I've been climbing mountains for a little over 10 years. It's just my, my absolute favorite thing to do. Taylor discovered climbing in high school and eventually founded a group called Blacklist Mountaineering to connect climbers and organize ascents in the Pacific Northwest. I have a team of about 10 people and have 10 different ascents on Rainier and many ascents on all the other volcanoes, lots of the Oregon volcanoes and uh, California, things like that, but pretty much all inside the United States. Despite being an accomplished mountaineer, Taylor was no stranger to close calls in the mountains. He and his girlfriend, McKaylee, were also rescued in the backcountry two years ago, but their memories of the event had some discrepancies. It's my current girlfriend now. It was our first date, actually. It was like our second or third date. We had a little argument about the route, and I ended up listening to her. He was starting to go up this rock wall, realized he couldn't find another way down. I was like, yeah, you know what, you're right. Let's go that way. We got into a really bad situation. We ended up getting stuck on this cliff, and it was a storm rolling in, and he had signs of hypothermia. So we called for help, proceeded to wait for about nine hours while he was getting worse and starting to fall asleep and get delusional. She ended up getting so weak, she couldn't even move. I kept him awake by like shaking him every 30 seconds to make sure he was conscious and not falling asleep. Went through a huge blizzard. And, you know, obviously we we made it out of there, but I couldn't walk right for like six months. My feet were completely numb. That's another reason why I love the mountains. They're so powerful. They can kill you at any time. It was probably one of the worst experiences of my life. That's when I realized, okay, we need to do more training and get better gear. And so we did that. We took a couple years and we got super skilled and super good in the mountains and worked really good as a team. Well over two years later, 
Taylor, decided to put his skills to the test. He and two partners from Blacklist Mountaineering, including Taylor's main partner, Matt Collins, set their sights on a challenging route up Mount Baker in Washington's North Cascades. I had climbed Baker several times, and so I was you know, familiar with how the route looked. We had a, a team of three uh, really skilled climbers, and Matt is my, my main climbing partner, so I was super confident. Literally one hour before we were scheduled to leave my house, we got this call from our third team member, I'm not going to be able to go. And we were like, you know, what? So that was, that was pretty upsetting. Um, and we talked about it, and we've climbed as a two-man team before, and uh, he's, he's the guy to have if I'm going to do a two-man climb. And so we just decided, you know, it's still on. The route's in good condition. We were supposed to have uh, really, really good weather, and it should have been an uneventful climb. And so, you know, for a second there, we just talked about it and decided, you know, we're, we're doing this anyways. Uh, we arrived there at 6 p.m., and so we were planning on leaving around 6.30. It'd give us plenty of time to reach the edge of the glacier. And our plan was to get there, have some tea, take a long break, get roped up. Our weather forecast was phenomenal. We were going to have clear skies and a beautiful sunrise at the summit, which was our end goal. We wanted to be at the summit for the sunrise. And so everything was going according to plan. We made it to the edge of the glacier and I checked the weather again on my Garmin. And at this point, the weather had started to change a little bit. It was kind of this rain and ice mix that was soaking us pretty good. And I remember thinking, you know, th this is probably, I had this gut feeling, this is, this is probably the time to turn around. And two of my biggest climbing idols, Ed Visers and Adrian Ballinger, they both talk about that all the time, you know, listen to your gut no matter what. I think one of the biggest problems with mountaineering is is pressure from yourself. And I, I deal with that a lot. Um, it's not necessarily pressure from my peers, but it's pressure from myself that you know, I know I can do this. I'm confident in my abilities. And um, I think that confidence can be pretty dangerous. We climbed the entire mountain in a, in a complete whiteout. And I could barely, there were, there's most of the time I could barely see Matt on the other end of the rope and so of course our climb took a lot longer than we had planned and uh, we did reach the summit we were there for probably like 20 seconds it was below zero blowing ice it was freezing uh, so we started heading down we dropped a few thousand feet before we could actually find our footsteps our footsteps were already covered up by the wind and the amount of snow and ice that was falling so I was staring at my GPS that, that entire time down. And at one point, uh, I remember Matt, he, he actually broke through the surface and had a super minor crevasse fall. I just remember looking back and being like, oh my goodness, he's, he's gone, you know? And it was so much of a whiteout that I couldn't really tell what had happened. I just knew that he wasn't there anymore. And I had assumed that, you know, he had fell into a crevasse and quick radio call to him. He said, yeah, I'm good to go. Let's just, just walk out and I can just climb the side of this thing as you move. It's definitely the most ideal crevasse fall I've ever seen. Finally, we reached the edge of the glacier and unroped and completely switched our, our modes here. We were just, let's get down this mountain, get the heck out of here. At this point, we were, we were flying down the mountain. We were just happy to be done. And that I think was the problem, I guess. Um, so I might've just been going a little too fast and not thinking. Um, maybe had too much confidence. But we were on this moraine. It's a moraine that has drops on both sides. 
I think the snow broke under me or something, but uh, this is where I tripped. I, I don't remember this, but Matt tells me I looked up at him at the last minute with a look of terror on my face. Taylor began to slide down slope with 3,000 feet of mountain below him. But his training kicked in immediately, and he tried to execute a self-arrest, a technique to stop a fall using an ice axe. I self-arrested, but my axe just couldn't get any purchase. So, you know, I, I wasn't stopping and I kept gaining speed and I slid about 50 feet and hit a rock. And I remember hitting the rock. It kind of launched me into the air. And I remember looking down and I saw this huge bird trend. He was rocketed into the air landing on the back part of the glacier and fell straight into a Berkshrund, which is essentially a separation in the glacier, a hole. And I could see the bottom of it. It was just a rock bottom. And a couple seconds later, I slammed into the bottom of it. And uh, this was with, of course, the momentum of the slide. I assumed that I hit my head when I fell and that uh, I just rattled my brain I remember getting a radio call from Matt. Uh, he was just asking me if I was alive, and uh, I was cognitive enough at that point to tell him I, I believe I have a concussion and uh, several broken bones in my left arm, but I remember telling him I think I can walk. The, the biggest issue at this point was I was laying underneath the glacier melt, and it was just a, a freezing waterfall of glacier water. And Luckily, I, I had my hard shell on because we were going through you know, a whiteout, but I wasn't with it enough to actually put my hood on. I remember laying under there and for the first few seconds, I, I couldn't feel any pain and I had thought I got lucky and was just pretty bruised up. So I remember trying to stand up. That's when I realized my arm was, was really messed up. And then uh, that's also when the pain set in. I actually went completely blind at this point. And uh, that's never happened to me before. And one of the scariest things I've ever had happen to me in my entire life. I thought that I was dying. And so it was, it was just terrifying. I realized I was falling asleep. And so that even more so made me feel like I'm actually gonna die. I, I did everything I could to fight it. I, I think I probably lasted maybe 20 seconds or so. And then, you know, I couldn't fight anymore. I, I, that's when I, I fell asleep. So during all this, you know, I didn't know this at the time, but Matt told me later he was trying to figure out how to get down to me. He tried to go down the same way that I slid and uh, he almost fell as well. Unfortunately, I had the rope on my pack, so he wasn't able to just rappel down to me. So he had to find a different way around. What felt like minutes to me down there in the hole, it, he, he told me later it took him 30 minutes to get to me. He said I was just laying there underneath the waterfall without my hood on. Without the rope, Matt wouldn't be able to get down into the Berkshrand. It was up to Taylor to get himself out. This is when I remember waking up and I remember him screaming at me. And I, I woke up and I heard him. I couldn't see him because I was still totally blind, but I, I heard him screaming at me to put my hood on. His next mission was to get me to press my SOS button because I, I do carry that, the inReach. He told me that I argued with him for like 20 minutes about it. 
And I, I do remember telling him that we didn't need any help and that I was going to get out of there. And of course, I was completely out of it. I also remember every now and then I'd have a moment of clarity. I remember telling him I'm completely blinded and can't see anything. I, I can't see you. And this was the point when I realized, you know, I need to hit that button. I finally agreed to pressing the button. And then Matt, he uh, kept telling me to throw him the rope. And so this took me a few tries because I was super weak and it was extremely painful. Even though it wasn't my bad arm, it was still jarring my whole body. And so finally, Matt got the rope and he started setting up a pulley system to get me out of there. He told me to put my harness on. I attempted this, but I was just in too much pain to put the harness on with one hand because my left hand, I had no ability to move it at all. And so I told Matt, you know, there's no way I'm able to do this. I just need to get out of here on my own. I need to climb out of this crack. I started to actually get a little bit of my vision back. It was super blurry, but I could make out Matt. He was laying up there on the edge of the uh, Bergtrend. I had one axe and it was a straight shaft axe. It wasn't an ice climbing axe or tool or, you know, no crampons. So I took a minute to figure out where I thought would be the best spot to attempt climbing out. You know, I didn't have a choice at that point, you know, cause it's just like a vertical ice wall and I found what I thought was the best spot um, at the top of it. It was it had a, a pretty decent overhang, which is fairly common in crevasses. And I just took the time to kick really good steps in. I chopped some steps above me with my axe. I could not risk falling back onto my arm. So it took a long time to get out of there because I, and it was super painful to get yarded out of there, but at least I was out of there. <laughs> And so at this point, I'm, I'm at the top now. I wasn't able to carry my pack out because it was too painful to have any weight on my shoulders. I had realized that since my pack was in the Berkshrend, so were my keys. So this is another thing. We were super lucky to have service. So I was able to call my girlfriend from the mountain and basically tell her what happened. And, you know, unfortunately, you, you've got to drive up here because my, my truck, my spare keys are at home. When McKaylee picked up the phone she could tell right away that something was wrong. He was taking longer to explain things and was having trouble forming sentences. And so I was really concerned about his head injury and how bad that might be. So that was really my primary concern driving up to him was just worrying about that. I understood the gravity of the situation more because I've been there. And I knew that if he didn't get down quick enough, he could come in a hypothermic state on top of the fact that his body was probably already in shock and it's just scary um having no control either of being able to make sure he gets out of there so it was definitely a scarier situation so i'm out of the crevasse uh he'd cut out a seat in the ice for me to sit and i was absolutely freezing and i've had frostbite before really bad and hypothermia and I knew I was getting close to that point. I remember telling him, you know, I got to get off this ice. So uh, there was a, a rocky section uh, a few hundred feet away. So this is when Matt went to work. He started cutting footholds in the ice all the way down to the rocks. And once he made it all the way down to the rocks, he 
he came back and he escorted me along so I didn't slip and fall further down the glacier. And right below us was another humongous crevasse. So we were super careful uh, walking over to, to the rock. Matt is actually, his background, he was an EMT. He was in the military. And so he, he's got some, some skills that definitely help out on the mountain. So he, he wrapped me up in every single layer he had, and he slung my arm with his hard shell. And then he, he left me there for a little bit so he could try to find a route out of there. And uh, so when he did that, he was cutting steps as he was going just so I'd be able to walk, uh, walk out as well. And, you know, like I was saying, all my gear was in the shrunk, so I didn't have any crampons or anything. When I was down there, Matt, I learned this later. He actually contacted Search and Rescue. Luckily, we had a little bit of service. And so he contacted them just in case he wasn't able to get me out. And I remember I was sitting there. Matt was nowhere to be found. He was trying to find a route. And uh, all of a sudden, I hear this helicopter. And I'm like, is this for us? I had no idea at that point. I never saw it because we were in this whiteout. But it, I was like, oh, this helicopter, it's super close. And later, we learned it was actually a Homeland Security helicopter that they sent in for us because they were the only people with a helicopter big enough to fly through that storm. And, you know, like I was saying, I've done Baker so many times and, and knew the direction we had to go. I told Matt, you know, we have to get to that actual trail no matter what. So we found a, a pretty short, uh, it's a fairly vertical ice wall that I knew would lead us directly to the actual trail. And I told him, you know, that he had to go first and, and kick really, really good steps in. So I was able to just walk up. So that's what we did, followed him up and we were actually on the trail. So about an hour later, we had walked down super, super slow. Um, I was super dizzy, really, really hard to walk out. And, you know, I was near frostbite on my toes and stuff. So I had to take like my boots and socks off because they were soaked from underneath the waterfall. So that took a while. Eventually, several hours later, we reached the trailhead. He was off the mountain, but Taylor wasn't home free yet. Hypothermia had set in and his arm was in bad shape. Whenever he came off the trail, he looked really beat up and exhausted, and he was freezing. And so I just wanted to get him to the hospital as quickly as possible. So we drove to the hospital, and I was there for a long time throughout the night. And basically, x-rays, of course, and uh, they, they told me I broke my humerus, which was uh, one of the worst breaks they said they'd ever seen. It was hanging on with like a, a really small strand of bone and it was basically entirely detached and dislocated my left shoulder and damaged some, some of my nerves in my left shoulder, uh, tore some tendons in my elbow, had some really bad internal bleeding in my elbow and I had a concussion for a little over a month. As Taylor physically began to recover, he began to reflect on what went wrong that day. It, it is going to change me forever. It is going to make me second guess, you know, like walking on things like that, or, you know, just work on my footing and kick better steps in. I, I really do believe it was a complete fluke thing um, that just happens sometimes because it looked completely benign, super easy piece of snow to, to cross. So. I actually got super, super lucky that there was that Bergstrand there 
because if I wouldn't have fallen into that trund, it's it's a nasty angle. And if it was the same kind of snow, I, I obviously wouldn't have been able to stop then either. And I would have just been picking up speed. It slides for about a thousand feet before it comes to a run out eventually. And so if I would have slid that whole way, there's a chance I would have, you know, fallen into a bigger crevasse, hit a huge, you know, boulder or something worse. I, you know, I, I definitely think I would have actually died if I didn't fall into that Bergstrand. Despite this brush with death, Taylor has no intention of giving up on mountaineering. Everyone asks me, so you're done, right? And it's like, oh no, <laughs> not yet. Now I'm doing pretty good and I've actually been able to hike again. Um, you know, just real easy trails, but I'm actually able to get outside, which is really good just for my mental stability. For a while there, it was, it was really bad, you know? just sitting around and not being entirely worthless. And I was in so much pain, I, I couldn't really sleep. The power that the mountains have, I think it's it's amazing to see and amazing to witness. And I, and I love being up there when they allow us to be up there. And so that, that's really what compels me to keep going up there is they're just so amazing and so beautiful. We as climbers need to realize, you know, if we go up there and, and we die, we're just, we're just gone. But we, are, we have people relying on us to come home. And so that's why we need to make the proper decisions. You know, when we have those gut feelings, we need to follow them. And when I saw that storm rolling in, that, that's when I, you know, had that feeling. I said, you know what, this is a bad idea. We need to go down. And that's the biggest thing I'm gonna learn from this. You, you need to come down no matter what. The parking lot's the summit, not the top of the mountain kind of thing. It's not the time to, you know, get selfish. And that's the biggest thing I'm gonna learn from this. And I hope that I can help other people learn from it too. It's, you know, you need, there are so many times when you just need to go down and, and rarely, especially once you get into the big mountains, you usually fail and you should just learn to accept that. You've got people you, that are relying on you to come home. It's not just about you. This episode was produced by me, Louisa Albanese, along with Zoe Gates and Sammy Potter. Our story editor and sound designer was Andrew Mares. Our assistant story editor was Tim Massa. Our script writer was Casey Lyons and Sammy Potter with help from Zoe Gates. This episode was mixed by Jason McDaniel from Electric Audio Inc. Thank you to Taylor Gibbler, McKaylee Jenkins, and Katherine Gibbler for sharing your stories and perspectives. If you enjoyed this episode of Out Alive, please subscribe and leave us a review. 